Oh, good morning, 9 o'clock. How are you guys this morning? Good, good, good. Glad you're awake. Looks like you've had your coffee. That's good, too. Hey, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Philippians today. If you don't have a Bible, there's an awesome app called YouVersion. You can download that from the App Store. Go on there, look up live events and everything that we will be covering today. All the verses we're looking at will be on that as well as the notes. Um, we started Philippians about two weeks ago, and we are in Philippians chapter 3 today. And what we said when we started this book is this book was actually a letter. It was written by a guy named Paul to a church that he had planted. These are real people in a real place, a place called Philippi, which have been the northern part of modern Greece. And so he writes this letter to these guys while he's under house arrest. He's under house arrest. He's writing to these dudes that are facing persecution because they're uh, people that are trying to follow Jesus in the midst of a pagan culture and context. And what we saw in week one is that Paul would say to these guys, now remember, Paul's under house arrest. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. He doesn't know if he's going to die in prison. doesn't know if he's going to be executed. And he tells them that we can only have joy in times of trouble when we adopt an eternal perspective in the midst of our circumstances. When we understand the reality that there is a God, that this God is in control of our lives, that this God loves us, that this God is working in the midst of everything we're going through, that gives us joy, that gives us a perspective that uh, leads us to a place of peace and satisfaction and contentment. And then last week, what we saw in Philippians chapter 2 is Paul talking about relationships. And he says, man, if God is truly doing something inside of you that's going to manifest itself in the way that you treat each other, that you're going to be humble that you're going to be kind, that you're not constantly going to be complaining, that you're not constantly going to be arguing. And then he tells the Philippians to lift up their eyes and look at Jesus. He spends a lot of time talking about the example that Jesus gave us of humility, and it gives us everything we need to live a life of unselfishness and live a life of unity. And, and this week, he's going to change gears once again, and this is where he, he's going to really speak to us this week. That right standing with God... Being right with God. This is why a lot of us are here in the room this morning, that we want to be right with God. We want to do this thing right that cannot be earned by anything that we do. Now, if you've grown up in church, some of us hear that and our eyes kind of glaze over and go, okay, one of these messages again. All right, got it. That's kindergarten Christianity, Christianity 101. I need the, the meaty stuff, right? No, 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 no. Don't tune me out. What, what Paul is going to tell these guys is this is found only in faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what maturity looks like in Christ. True maturity is not graduating from that fact. True maturity is not just leaving that behind. True maturity is when we understand it and we grow into it and we press into it, we then give up everything just to know him. And everything to press toward the goal of spiritual maturity, keeping in view the goal of our eternity, that the more that we know him and the more we're satisfied by him, the cheaper the things of this world seem to us. And so what Paul is going to do in this chapter is lift up our eyes and show us the reality of eternity, show us the reality of knowing Christ and the reality of the gospel. Now, this is a very meaty chunk of scripture so we're going to try to go a little bit fast today. Um, I hope you're ready to go fast. There, there's a, a lot in here, but it's, God has really uh, been speaking to me through it, so I hope that uh, God speaks to you through it as well. So everybody doing okay? Okay, good. Um, you were loud when we first started, and you've gotten quiet since then, so don't scare me too much like that. All right, that's better. Okay. All right, let's pray together, and we'll get right into this. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to do what we're doing. We thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit, that we don't study your word by ourselves. God, this is not just a textbook. Lord, that you are the shepherd, that you are the guide, that you lead us to truth. So right now, God, we don't want another church service. We don't. We, our, our nation is not dying for lack of church services. God, we want an encounter with the living God right here, right now. I do not want to leave this room the same way I came in. And so right now, God, I'm putting my faith and my hope in you and asking God that you would speak to me and that you would change me. So Father, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, your word would not return void. It's a promise that you gave us and we claim that now this morning in faith, that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it has been sent. And today we ask it would bear fruit in our lives. Keep your hand on every church in town. They're preaching Jesus and Christ crucified. We pray, God, that you would grow their church. 
We pray that you bless their pastors, and we pray that the church in Murfreesboro would be united. God, we love you, and we thank you. Be with us this morning as we read your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Um, by the way, I'm reading from the ESV versions. People have asked me that. Corey normally does the HCSB, but I'm reading from the ESV. So if you're looking for the version I'm reading, just the ESV, the elect standard version. <laughs> All right, here we go. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, if we don't know the context of what he's writing about, these first three verses seem a little odd. Is he warning these guys about packs of wild dogs running around the Philippi? What in the world's going on here? So he marks a transition point in the letter. He says, finally, well, he's only halfway through this letter. So, so probably a better translation of that term finally would be well then or furthermore. And he says, finally rejoice in the Lord. Like he spent the first two chapters saying that over and over and over again, joy and rejoice. And, and he knows he's being repetitive, but still he continues to encourage his readers with the same theme, rejoice in the Lord. Now what that tells me is that if Paul says that I need to say this to you again, that I have to get in the habit of daily preaching the gospel to myself. No one talks to you more than you. You know that, right? And so we have to get in the habit of reminding ourselves the reality of God, reminding ourselves of the reality of who we are in Christ. And so this is what Paul would say to these guys. I know I'm being repetitive, but you need to hear it. Rejoice in the Lord. And as a father protects his children, Paul is wanting to keep his spiritual children from harm. And so he talks about dogs and mutilators of the flesh. This is very strong language. He's actually warning them of false teachers. He's warning them of people who would swoop in and try to tempt the church to, to stray from sound doctrine and sound teaching. And he's using a bit of sarcasm to describe the people who had lost the true significance of circumcision. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. They've lost the significance of it. Now, we've got to get a little background to understand what's going on here. Paul would go and preach the gospel and plant churches in certain towns, and he would preach that to be made right with God was faith in Jesus. That's what it took, faith in Christ, belief in Christ, surrender to Christ. And then he'd go somewhere else to preach the gospel after he'd established the church. And then false teachers would come in, these guys named Judaizers, and they would say to these guys who were Gentiles, they weren't they weren't Hebrew, they, they were Gentiles. He would, they would say to him, hey, I know this guy Paul said that all it takes is faith in Christ, but it's not just faith in Christ. You have to be circumcised. It's not just faith in Christ. You've got to follow these rules. You've got to follow these holidays. You essentially have to follow all the customs of Judaism in order to be made right with God. And so Paul would come against these guys in very strong language and say, no, 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 no. These guys don't get it. They're not really teaching truth. And so we have to go here because it's in the Bible. I know some of you guys came here thinking, I want to hear about Jesus, not circumcision. What in the world? Why are we talking about this? Okay, so um, we've got to get into this just, just so we understand this passage of Scripture. So um, it's going to get a little awkward, but that's okay. You can laugh a little bit. That helps me out not feel as weird. So, okay, here we go. What in the world is going on in this passage? Why does he mention circumcision? Well, in the Old Testament... Circumcision was a religious rite. It was a religious ceremony that was required of all male Jews as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is a promise that God made with Abraham that God would cause Abraham to multiply and his descendants would number the stars in the heaven. And so this was a sign that God gave him. You can read about it in Genesis 17. In the Old Testament, anytime someone made a promise with God or a covenant with God, this was often marked by a tangible, physical reminder. So if you think about the story of Noah, when God floods the earth and saves Noah and his family and the animals on the ark and they come off the ark, God said he promised never again to flood or destroy the earth with water. And so he sent a rainbow in the sky as a sign of that covenant. Elsewhere, you'll find people building altars or building Ebenezers, these reminders that God spoke to them and God promised something to them. So think about this. 
every Jewish male was marked in their flesh by this sign that signified they belonged to a chosen nation, that they were different. They weren't like anyone else, that they were identified by who God said they were and their lives were marked by God. But it was something deeper than that. Yes, it was a religious ritual, but it was an outward representation that pointed to a deeper spiritual reality. All through the Old Testament, God would say to the people of Israel, circumcise your hearts. And what in the world is he talking about? Well, just as the flesh was cut away, God's desire for his people, God's desire for Israel was that they would remove the stubborn, sinful thoughts from their minds and they would purge sin from their hearts so that they could become obedient to God. So circumcision was this outward symbol of something far greater, something far deeper, something that happened inside of us, in our spirit, in our heart. Now, however, just because somebody went through a ritual and did not mean they actually kept God's commands and were made right with him. If you don't believe me, go back and read the Old Testament. Go back and read what God says to Israel about how they were being disobedient, not following what God wanted them to do. And in fact, Abraham was not made right with God just because he was circumcised. Abraham was justified, or that fancy church word for made right with God, because of his faith. That's what it says in Romans chapter four, that he believed God, he put faith in God, he trusted God, he followed God with his whole heart and that resulted in his obedience, but it first started with his heart. Now, thankfully, circumcision is not a part of God's covenant with Christians. That would make my job really weird, so we're happy that it's not. Um, You can laugh at that, please do, because that makes me feel awkward if you don't. Um, So circumcision is not a part of God's covenant with Christians, that we don't have that as an outward symbol of an inward reality, but we have something else. We have an act that's a physical representation of the inward work of God in our hearts, and that is baptism. And since the emphasis is placed in baptism on the removal of sin from a person's life, that when they go under that water and they come back up, that water covering them and washing them is symbolic of the blood of Jesus washing them and removing sin from their life. And when they come up out of that water and that water covers them from head to toe and they're baptized in the name of Jesus, that is identifying them as Christ, that's the closest equivalent we have to the Old Testament ritual of circumcision. Then in the New Testament, we have baptism. In the Old Testament, they had this ritual. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter two. He says to this church, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. But it wasn't a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. But this is the symbol that we have now in the New Testament church for the inward work of God in our hearts. But here's the problem, and this is what Paul was alluding to. Humanity has taken rituals, religion, and traditions, and we've trusted in those things to make us right before God. In the Philippian church, these false teachers had distorted the gospel. This teaching that Paul had come in and talked about faith in Christ, they had added the requirement of circumcision of Gentiles as necessary for salvation. And anytime we try to add to God's work with our own efforts, we prove we really don't understand the gospel. We prove that we don't understand the holiness of God and the inadequacy of our own works and the love and grace of God. And so you have one part that kind of tries to add to what God has done through works and try to add to what God has done. It's Jesus plus this or Jesus plus this. But then there's kind of an opposite error that's just as wrong, and that is people that believe somehow that if you go through a ritual, if you go through a ceremony, if you go through some sort of a tradition that kind of replaces faith in God, or that is the same thing as faith in God. And Paul calls these guys out. He says the truly circumcised, the ones that really get it, are the ones who worship by the Spirit, glory in Jesus, and put no confidence in external empty displays of religion to save them. And Paul would later write to his protege, Timothy, and he would say that in the last days, that's the the time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and the time from when he comes back again for his church, many people would have a form of godliness, but that form would have absolutely no power in their lives. And aren't we seeing that in America? 
A lot of people have a form of it. Man, I, I go to church, I did this, I was baptized into this denomination, this works for me. It's kind of like a flu vaccine. I got it one time and you know, I might need it, might not need it, but I'd have it just in case I do. But that has absolutely no power in their lives to save them. It has no power to fix their marriage. It has no power when their life has fallen apart. And so this is what Paul would say. This is a work of the flesh. That can't save you, that can't fix you. Now we don't have circumcision in our culture that we kind of fall back on and use to replace faith in Christ, but we have some equivalents of it that I think are equally as dangerous. Here, here's one I see all the time. When I ask somebody, how long have you been a Christian? How long have you put your hope and faith in Jesus and been following after Jesus? A lot of times the answer I get is, well, I grew up in a Christian home. And it kind of fades out after that as if somehow faith in Christ is passed down generationally, like fondness for a certain sports team. Well, my dad was always a Cubs fan, so I guess I, guess I am too, you know. And here's the thing, if you grew up in a Christian home, man, thank your parents, tell them thank you. That was awesome, they did something right doing that. That's great, that's awesome. But there has to come a moment in time when we are aware of our own sin and our own need for a savior. And our faith becomes our own. And in fact, many of the people that would oppose Jesus in his ministry were people that had grown up in religious homes and contexts. They'd grown up celebrating Passover. They'd grown up with all of the different traditions and rituals, and, and they would say, hey, we're children of Abraham. Abraham's our father, man, we're good. And Jesus would say, no, 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 your father is the devil. Simply growing up in a religious home is not the same thing as vibrant saving faith in Jesus. Here, here's one, church attendance or membership. And church is important. I'm glad you're here. Even if you are not sure about this Jesus thing yet, but you're here, that's awesome. You're welcome here. Thank you for being here. But please hear me out. Just by you being here this morning is not the same thing as saving faith in Christ. It's absolutely not the same thing at all. And I think a lot of times we find comfort in that and calling that faith in Christ because it's a lot easier to surrender an hour of our week than it is the rest of our lives. So if we think, man, if I can just be in church for an hour, man, I did what God asked me to do, went through the ritual, checked the box, God's gotta be happy with me, all right, and then kinda push God off to the side and we'll see you again next week, and that's easier for us than actually saying, no, God, here's my life, here's my marriage, here's my money, here's my time, here's every part of me. Baptism is important. Baptism is essential. We talked about it, how this is a symbol, your public profession that you belong to Christ. But hear me out, just getting in a tub of water, if your heart is not responding to Christ in faith is not gonna save your soul. Getting in a tub of water, if all you're doing is looking to just complete a work so God's gotta let you in when you die, all you're gonna do is get wet. There's nothing magical about Murfreesboro city water. Here's another one, walking an aisle or saying a prayer. Usually this logic goes like this. Man, I came to a church service and a minister said, all you gotta do is you gotta walk the aisle, repeat after me, I did it, I signed the card, I hadn't really done anything with it for the last 20 years, I've kind of been living for myself, not talked to God, not been around God, but I know I'm saved because I said what that preacher told me to say. Man, if you responded to Christ through walking an aisle or saying the prayer, that's awesome. The question is, did you just say a prayer or walk an aisle or did you really respond to Christ? Because I've met so many people that it's like an incantation. Well, I said the magic spell, I'm, I'm saved. Man, it's not a prayer that saves you. It's not walking an aisle that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. So when we put our faith in that, we are putting our faith in an external work and acting like it's some sort of a magic spell. Here's, here's one I hear a lot. I'm just trying to be a good person. Man, that's all God wants from me. I'm just, you know, being a good person, man. Church, helping the poor, giving a dollar when I can, walking old ladies across the street. Man, this is, this is enough to save me and enough to make God happy with me. And here's why that doesn't work. In order for you to say that you are a good person, you have to play the comparison game. And I can make anybody seem like a good person if I can compare them to the right guy. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Like I can make a murderer on death row seem like a pretty good person if I compare him to Adolf Hitler. Well, at least he didn't kill six million people. He only killed two. I mean, he's, he's a pretty good person. That's usually what we do, right? I'm a good dad. I'm not like that brother-in-law I've got. I've never seen his kids. I'm there for my kids. I'm a good person. But when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, and to the standards of God, what we'll see is our goodness is woefully inadequate. 
And that none of these things, if we're trusting in these things over a saving relationship with Christ, none of those things can fix us or change us. It's a form of godliness, but these things have absolutely no power in and of themselves. And so any teaching that emphasizes external behaviors as being capable to make one acceptable in the sight of God, no matter what you've been told, that is a lie. And if being right with God, if being justified before God is all about our religious performance, then every person in this room is damned. Not in the curse words, in the literal sense. We've got no shot. And here's why, even if we succeed, even if we do everything that is required of us in our best religious efforts, this will only lead in our flesh to self-righteousness and pride. And that is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. In James 4, James says that God opposes the proud. So even if we do all of the right things for the wrong reasons, we make ourselves enemies to God. I mean, you can't fix yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself acceptable in the sight of God. So what is this about? This is about a matter of the heart. It's about the heart. What does God want from you? Does so it check a box, walk an aisle, say a prayer, sign a card, and all right, God, I did what you told me to do. Leave me alone. Let me into heaven when I die. Is that what this is about? No, God wants your heart. He wants all of you. It's a matter of the heart. It starts with something called repentance. Repentance is a change in your life. The Greek word is metanoia. That means to change your mind. That's when we look at our lives and we look at everything we've known about ourselves and everything we've known about what we've thought is right, and then we look at God's word and everything that we think we know that doesn't align with the word of God, we say, I am wrong and God is right. I'm going to submit my will to his, and a changed mind results in a changed heart, which results in a changed life. It's not feeling bad about something you've done, but then going back and doing it over and over again. Repentance means changing, changing your heart, changing your mind. It's faith in Christ, not in ourselves. See, true faith in Christ results in works. James says, faith without works is dead. Man, if two guys came up to you this morning in this room and said, hey, the building's burning down, the building's burning down, we got five minutes to get out of here, the building's burning down, and the first guy started rounding up people and running out to the parking lot and going to the nursery and grabbing babies and running out, you'd say, man, that guy believes it. He really believes the building's burning down. He's acting like it. But the other guy said, hey, the building's burning down, and he sat in the front row and pulled out his phone and started playing Pokemon. You'd say, that guy doesn't believe it doesn't believe it at all. He's just saying it. He's just going through the motions in the same way. What James is saying is that if you don't do anything with what you claim to believe, you don't really believe it. Faith without works is dead and true faith in Christ, not in ourselves, will result in radical fruit for Christ. And then surrender is a component of this as well. When we say Jesus is Lord, I sometimes wonder if we actually know what that word means. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is the ruler of my life. Jesus is the king of my life. That means he calls the shots, not me. It means I don't get to be the one that makes the plans. He makes the plans. He dictates how I live my life. And true surrender is what God wants for each and every one of us this morning. And the saving faith in Christ looks like this. You guys still with me? All right, chapter Three, verse four, let's keep going. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. There's one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So if anyone had a right to brag about their religious status and their religious achievements, it would be Paul. He'd been circumcised according to the Jewish law. He'd been born of the Israelite tribe of Benjamin. He knew his family history and lineage. He was a devout Pharisee. A Pharisee was somebody that studied the law backwards and forwards. He would have probably had huge portions of the law memorized. And he'd been faithful. He said, I was blameless according to the Old Testament law. I mean, that's, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And Paul says, I was nailing it. I was knocking it out of the park. And not only that, he says, I was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. Before his conversion to Christ, he'd been a violent persecutor of the church because he saw these Christians who were claiming Jesus as Lord as the biggest blasphemers on the face of the earth. And so Paul's mission in life before he met Christ was to find them, round them up, and kill them. His Jewish heritage, his Jewish practices had been important to him. But after his encounter with Jesus, Jesus showed him that simply being religious did not make him righteous before God. Can I say that again? Because I feel like some of us just, that goes right over our heads. Jesus showed him after he had an encounter with Jesus, a real encounter with Jesus, where he saw Jesus, what changed everything about his life, that simply being religious did not make him righteous. And Paul says that he counts all of these credentials, all these things that he did as absolute rubbish. Now, the English cleans this up and makes it sound really flowery, rubbish, right? Um, the, the Greek word is dung, and actually it's a stronger word for dung that I probably shouldn't say in church, the English equivalent. This is what he says. Man, all of that, all of the things that I did in my own flesh to try to prove my worth and my holiness and my piety, I look at all those things and they're all absolute dung. And the things he's accomplished in his own strength, he counts as garbage in comparison to gaining Christ. That no longer was his life about personal ritual or religious acts. His life was now focused on knowing Christ and in regards to eternal salvation, in regards to us being right before God, you and I deserve nothing. We deserve absolutely nothing from God. The only thing we deserve from God is his judgment. We can achieve nothing in and of ourselves, and we have no reason for pride. We have no reason for self-assurance. And God has done everything for us. He's, he's created us. He gave us life. You didn't give yourself the skills and talents and abilities that you have. That was a gift that God gave you. He gave us grace. He's given up his son Jesus on the cross for our sins. He's raised Jesus and declared us righteous and made right with God, justified before God because of Jesus. He's adopted us as his children. And not only that, he's promised us resurrection and eternal life. And the only part we play to any of this, if you can call it that, is to accept what God has done for us in faith. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And so demonstrating the lack of importance in earthly things, Paul expressed what life truly meant to him. He says, man, it is about me knowing Jesus and I desire earnestly the resurrection from the dead. This is something that he longed for. If you think about his life, if you think about the things that he had seen, he wanted there to be an end to the suffering he saw all around him and he sought the only way that promised him resurrection and that was the resurrected one. And his encounter with Jesus changed his entire aim in life. He only wanted to know Christ, and he only wanted to know the power of his resurrection. He talks about knowing Christ. 
That when we know Christ, we know his love and we know his intimate friendship. In the book of Revelation, chapter three, Jesus is speaking to a church that is lukewarm and that's grown cold in their love. And Jesus reprimands them and says all these things about it. And then he says, man, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And if you hear me and you open the door, I wanna come in. What he doesn't say is, I wanna come in and make you serve me. I wanna come in and you gotta wash my face. I wanna come in and I'm gonna boss you around. He says, I wanna come in and I wanna have supper with you. And what does God want from me? What does he want from you? He wants everything. He wants intimate friendship and intimate love. It's to know the reality of eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that heaven and earth will pass away. Um, sometimes we don't like believe that. You ever been to a funeral before and people are like absolutely completely shell-shocked because for a lot of them, they've not really pondered the reality that every person in this room someday will die. And it's like we're just interrupted all of a sudden from this delusion that we hold on to. Like we know it's gonna come to an end, but sometimes we don't really think about that. And we know Christ, we understand that heaven and earth will pass away, but then Jesus says, my words will never pass away. If you know me, if you follow me, you know the reality, not just of eternity, but what you can expect in eternity with me. And it's to know the only source of contentment, the only source of peace, and the only source of joy in this life. Jesus said in John 14, in this world you will have trouble. That is a promise. You will have suffering. Things are gonna get bad in this world. But he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. He didn't say, hey, take heart, man. There's a lot of self-help books out there. You find whatever path works for you. You know, you do a lot of yoga, eat your spinach, just, you know, figure out something to make yourself happy. Just, just find your own way. Then you just make it up as you go along. No, he says, I'm the one that's overcome the world. I'm the one that can give you contentment. I'm the one that can give you peace. I'm the one that can give you joy. I'm what you're looking for. And so when we know Christ, we know the answer to every funk we find ourselves in. It's Christ. In verse 12, Paul points out something incredible. He says, man, I know I haven't arrived. He's not yet mature. And he's very much still in the race of the Christian life. Now, this is a dude that wrote most of the New Testament. If a dude that wrote most of the New Testament says, I'm not yet there. I've still got a lot of stuff I'm working through. Then that gives me some hope. It tells me, man, I'm not yet arrived. I've got a lot of stuff that I'm working through. And the perfection he would have in the future resurrection was not yet attained. And he still had to deal with what he wrote in another letter he wrote to the Roman church in Romans 7, something called the flesh. This innate desire to sin where he would tell the Romans, man, there are days when like, I don't want to do something, but I do it. And there are days when I do want to do something, but I don't do it. And there's like a battle going on in the inside of me. This is something he's very much still working through. And this, what, this tells me there's always room for you to grow. There's always room for me to grow. There's always more that God wants to do in us. We've never graduated from this. You will not have achieved everything that God has for you until we see Jesus face to face. And Paul talks about himself, I love this, as a runner who hopes to win a prize. He's refused to look back. He's refused to let himself get slowed down by the guilt of his past. He forgets about the pain of prison, about the physical punishment and the frustration from false teachers and difficult people. And he's only looking forward to the resurrection where he'll meet Jesus face to face. And the things of this earth wouldn't satisfy him. He says, man, I count all those things as rubbish. I'd only slow him down. You and I get distracted and spiritually crippled when the things of this earth slow us down in our race. When we turn the good things that God has given us into God's themselves, this cripples us, this slows us down. Can we just talk real? Um, football's starting next weekend. We're going there. I don't care. We're going there, right? Okay, step on some toes. Like, our attendance is going to go whoop. Why? Man, football's a good thing. Watch it for the glory of God and the good of all people. But man, listen, 
When we care more about a bunch of 18-year-old boys that are chasing around an oblong ball than the God of the universe that died for you, there's something going on in our hearts that needs to be addressed. So I want to ask you, man, have you taken a good thing like football we're going to play in heaven for the glory of God for all eternity? Somebody amen that. That's weird. Just, just glad it wasn't like an amen and roll tide or something weird like that. Um, Man, we take something like that and we turn that into a God. And then we wonder why we come into church and we say, holy, holy, Lord Almighty. And we're like, I don't feel it. But then the day before, we were like screaming at the TV and chest bumping our kids because they scored a touchdown. We're like, I'm just not that emotional. Yes, you are. But your heart has been crippled because you're making this thing into a God itself. And Paul says that slows you down. Don't do that. Paul knows that the upward call of being with Christ mattered more than any of the treasure of this earth. It matters more than your team winning a stupid trophy. It matters more than you getting all the money in this world. But all of those things, Paul says, is absolute rubbish. And he says, if you're mature spiritually, let those of us who are truly mature think this way. Now, what is he saying by that? He says, Maturity looks like knowing that you haven't arrived. You ever meet somebody that seems like they just know everything there is to know about everything? I mean, everything like about the Bible and everything about God, and they just know everything about the Holy Spirit, and it's just, wow, look how spiritual they are. Well, Paul would say, man, you're not very spiritual. You're not very spiritually mature if that's where you're at. Because true spiritual maturity is saying, man, I am not who I was, but I am not yet what I need to be. I've got a long way to go. If the Apostle Paul said that, that means that we need to have an awareness that we haven't yet arrived. Spiritual maturity is forgetting about what lies behind you. Forgetting about what lies behind you. Man, Paul, as we said earlier, was given the task of killing Christians. When he writes in 2 Corinthians about him having a thorn in his flesh, this thing that kept tormenting him over and over again, people have tried to speculate, man, what was that? Was that... Was that depression? Was that, and a lot of people, I think this is interesting. This is just guessing. I don't know. A lot of people think it was post-traumatic stress disorder. And as he would lay down at night to sleep and close his eyes, he would see the faces of the men, women, and children in the moments before their execution, shuddering with fear and screaming out. And he would feel guilt and shame and anxiety, and it would cripple him. And Paul says, man, you forget about that. That's under the blood of Jesus. You keep running your race. Forget about what lies behind you. Keep your eyes fixed on what matters. And for some of us in the room this morning, we need to forget about what's behind us. Whether we think it's the good old days that are behind us or we think it's the worst time of our lives that's behind us. Keep your eyes fixed on what's ahead of you. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Forget about what lies behind you. And then he says, press on in endurance. Press on. Marathon runners have this thing called hitting the wall. Have you ever heard of it? When a lot of people train for marathons, they actually don't run the full distance of the race in training. They don't run the full 26 miles. They run maybe 22, 23, depending on their training program. And, and, and what that is is the last three, four miles of that race, your body tells you you cannot physically keep running. That is hitting the wall. You can't do this is what your body tells you. And what they say is when you hit the wall, man, keep going. Your mind's got to tell your body, yes, I can. I'm going to keep doing this. And you keep pressing, and you keep pressing, you keep pressing, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, and then you cross the finish line. And you're capable of far more than you ever thought you were capable of. And this is what Paul is saying to these guys. Some of you are discouraged. Some of you think you've got nothing. Some of you are lonely. Some of you think, I can't do this anymore. He says, yes, you can. Keep pressing on. In the next chapter, he'll say, I can do all things that Christ who gives me strength. Let's look at this last part. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. 
and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by a power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul's example was Christ. He did everything he could to model his life after Christ, and then he appealed to his readers to follow his example. He said, hey, follow me as I'm following Christ, and not to follow the examples of the people that were living their lives in a place of loss. See, in the pagan context of Philippi, remember this was a Roman colony in in a place where Greece is now, hedonism, gluttony, drunkenness, sexual deviance, and all-out debauchery were just commonplace. That's what everybody did. Like You would have grown up this way because the worship of the gods involved all of these things. And so the festivals and going to a place of worship involved doing these things. And so when these guys met Christ and they started living differently, it would have seemed very odd to the people around them. Paul says, guys, don't follow what culture is doing. Keep your eyes fixed on me. I'm going to follow Christ and let's follow Christ together, not culture. And Paul tells his readers through tears that these people are walking to their own destruction. It breaks his heart. He's crying about it as he's writing. I mean, he's thinking about these people. He's probably seeing their faces because he was there preaching the gospel and a lot of them had the opportunity to respond to the gospel, but a lot of them willingly and proudly refused Christ's sacrifice for them, an offer of eternal life, just so they can indulge in the passing pleasures of sin. You mean if I follow this Jesus, I can't go to this festival or this party? I can't get drunk with my friends? I don't want that. So Paul says, man, these people, this is what's really going on with them. Their God is their belly. The desires of their flesh, these appetites of the flesh, whether it's food or whether it's wine, those are the things that they live for and the things they worship. Now, lest we, we get chronologically snobbery and we, we look down and say, oh, those horrible people. Let's look at our culture for a second. I mean, isn't it like indulgence and physical pleasures that, that what our culture says will satisfy us? I mean, guys, you just have to watch TV for like 10 minutes and see the commercials about food and about drink, and we think, man, that's what it means to truly be happy. Those weird chocolate commercials with the lady with the breathy voice talking about chocolate, and you're going, well, I, I just feel weird. I'm going to change the channel. Like, it's just, it, we, we talk about these things being what's really going to make us happy. But here's the thing. Our appetites for pleasure always grow the more that we feed them. Know how your boy Kobayashi eats like 200 hot dogs every 4th of July? It's not because he starves himself. It's because he eats a lot in preparation for it, and it stretches his belly. And the more he eats, the more he wants. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? The more we feed appetites for pleasure, the more that will always leave us empty and unsatisfied. I've never met an addict that says, man, that next high is really going to satisfy. I know it's going to satisfy me. Always leaves us wanting more. It always leaves us empty. Paul says they glory in their shame. Then in Philippi, worship of the gods involves sexual deviance and temple prostitution. These guys were proud of the things of which they should be ashamed. Now we have an enemy. This isn't weird spirituality to say that there is such a thing as a devil and there is such a thing as a hell and there is such a thing as demons. We have an enemy that is extremely strategic and he knows that if you can disbelieve in him, he's probably got an advantage on you. That enemy knows that if we can glory in, if we as a culture and as a people group can glory in, our other words for that is normalize things or mainstream things, the things that are actually shameful deep down when we really start thinking about it, our consciences will be deadened to that sin and repentance will become more difficult. Let me just give you an example. A um, hundred years ago, it would have been like unthinkable to think about there's a website out there that offers people the opportunity to anonymously have an adulterous affair. Somebody said, what? Are you kidding me? No, no, it's there. And not only that, we're putting billboards around major cities around it. We're glorying in this shame. We're trying to say it's not that big of a deal. I know you probably feel bad because you're religious, but it's not that big of a deal. 
And our consciences are getting deadened collectively to where things that we should feel bad about, things we should blush about, things we should feel embarrassed about, we don't anymore. We glory in things that are shameful. Paul says these guys' minds are set on earthly things, that money, power, material possessions, and fame are what the world says that you need to be happy. Every person in this room knows the reality of that deep down, even if you don't want to admit it. You know that all wealthy people, all famous people, and all powerful people are not happy. Right? The understatement of the century. Just go to Kroger and peruse the magazine aisles, and that will completely dispel that myth if you still hold on to it. That the things of this earth pass away, and our souls will someday stand naked before a holy God. And man, I hope it's not in spiritual poverty. This is what Jesus said. He said, if you try to hang on to this life, if you try to make your life about earthly things and you're hanging on to it, whether that's money or career or your team winning the championship this year, if that's what you're hanging on to and you're banking, that's your life, he says, you're gonna lose it. But if you try to hang on to it, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world that you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? That's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is, of course not. Of course not. So Paul pleads with the Philippians to keep their eyes fixed on godly examples as they continue to run the race, that we're not to turn our back on our non-Christian friends. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if you didn't associate with immoral people, you have to like, leave the world and not be part of it. But he does say we're to be careful with the company we keep. And the people we look to is an example for how to live our lives. The, the book of Proverbs even says, if you walk with wise people, you'll be wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. I didn't do anything wrong. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and it was with the wrong people. Yeah, that, that's, that's it. You were a companion of a fool, and that's why you're at where you're at. Companion of fools suffer harm. So we have to ask ourselves as we leave this section of scripture, whose voice is the most influential in your life right now? Is it somebody you know is following after Christ and somebody you know five years from now, they are who you want to be and they are where you want to be? Or are you listening to the voices of your culture and you're following those things instead? Can you do what Paul did? Paul says, hey, I'm following Christ, imitate me. Do what I'm doing, imitate me. Can you really recommend that others follow your example as a Christian? I know sometimes I can't. And are you following mindsets that are enemies to the cross of Christ? Mindsets that talk about setting our mind on earthly things and making our bellies, our appetites, our God and glorying in shameful things. Are those mindsets that you're following and you're putting your hope in? And are you living your life as if your citizenship is in heaven? Essentially what Paul is saying in this chapter of the Bible is that we are to live our lives in the light of what God has done for us on the cross. This miracle of grace. Church fathers would look for a name for it and try to understand how to describe it, and eventually they came up with this concept known as the great exchange. They said this is what Christ has done for us, that, that you and I need perfect righteousness to be acceptable to God. We've gotta be perfect to be acceptable to God because God is perfection, and that's a good thing. I mean, we wouldn't want a God that was sovereign over all the universe to have imperfect justice but we don't have perfect righteousness. Instead, all we have is sin. So God has what we need and we don't deserve, righteousness, and we have what God hates and rejects and pushes away from, and that's sin. But the miracle of grace is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in our place, that God lays our sins upon Christ and punishes Christ instead of us. When Christ went to the cross, that was my death he was dying. That was your death he was dying. My sins are what put him there. Your sins are what put him there. And in Christ's obedient death, God fulfills his righteousness and credits it to us. So when we put our hope and our faith in Jesus, when God looks on us, he does not see our brokenness. He sees us covered by the righteousness of Christ. That our sin is on Christ and his righteousness is on 
us the miracle of grace, the great exchange. If you get that, if you don't think, man, that's kindergarten Christianity, I'm just going to graduate from that and move on from that. No, if you get that and you lean into that and you wake up every morning, you preach that to yourself and you, you lean into that, what that will give you and what that will give me is humility. Man, I did nothing to earn this. I did nothing to earn his grace and his love. I'm a recipient of grace. This is not about me. This is not about my efforts. This is about him and what he's done for me. This breeds in us radical dependence. I can do nothing on my own strength. I need him each and every day. This gives us a holy restlessness. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching a football game, but man, don't put your hope and faith whether or not your team is actually going to carry the ball and not drop it. That ruins your day. Man, watch the game, but there should be in you this kind of sense of, man, there's something more to life than this. There's something more to life than my team actually being good at running down a field holding an object. And I'm living for something far greater and something far better. I'm not content where I'm at. I'm moving forward to knowing Christ and making him known, and that gives us a hope of eternity. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't get too comfortable. So I'm gonna ask you as we close today, are you trying to earn God's favor and love through your religious performance? Thinking, man, if I just go down the list and I check the boxes, man, that'll make God happy with me. That will make God love me more. I won't, won't go to hell. I'll just do all the things that God tells me to do. He's got to let me in. Or can you honestly say right here, right now, that you've truly trusted in Christ and it's a saving relationship with Christ? Marked by repentance. Marked by faith in Christ, not yourself. Marked by complete, 100% total surrender to him as Lord. Are you living your life for eternity? Are you living your life to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Or can you say right now that, man, to be honest, I'm living for things that I know will never satisfy my soul. I'm guilty of idolatry. I put my hope and my faith in money. I put my hope and my faith in my spouse. I put my hope and my faith in sports and stupid things. And right now, I know if I really think about it, those things aren't going to save me or fix me or give me what I need in this life. We live in the light of the great exchange, in the light of all that God has done for us. This is a miracle of his grace and his power in our lives. Would you bow your heads with me? God, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for creating us and giving us life. We thank you for redeeming us through grace. God, may we never take that lightly. We may never just act as if that is cheap. God, today we want to respond to your grace. We want to respond to what you've done for us. For some of us, God, that may look like surrendering our lives, maybe for the first time, and for others of us, it may look like us surrendering parts of our lives that maybe we've taken from you, maybe we've tried to do it on our own strength. And God, today we ask that you would align us to your will and to your word. Guys, there's communion all on the sides of the room and in the back of the room and the front of the room. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've repented of your sins, you are welcome to take that. But remember, guys, that's, that's not something that will save you. That's a symbol of a God that has saved you through the cross of Christ. As you take that, remember what he's done for you. Remember the cost of your redemption, that it cost Jesus his life. There's people up here to my left I would love to pray with you if you're facing anything that you need prayer for. Man, you feel like you're hitting a wall right now and you just need somebody to hold you and somebody to pray with you and somebody to cry with you. Come find one of these guys. Lord God, we need you. We need you. We can do nothing of our own strength. Speak to us this morning. Let us respond to your word in a way that pleases you, in a way that honors you. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.